0: Well, this morning we continue in our study of the book of 1 John. If you're visiting with us or tuning in online for the first time, we uh, study books of the Bible here at Ascension, and we are currently in a study of uh, 1 John, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. We're picking up where we left off last week. Uh, I know that you guys have gotten lazy in bringing your Bibles with you because of the screen behind me. Uh, I'm not going to make you feel too guilty about that, only slightly guilty about that. Uh, I love for you to bring your Bibles. Uh, This is not uh, my my preaching. These are not thoughts from Nate Hitchcock up here. Uh, My intention is to open up God's Word and to work our way through it together. And so these words behind me, they're going to pop up and then they're going to disappear, which is why I love for you to have God's word in your lap so you can follow along, so you can go back with me uh, to where uh, we are headed. If you don't have a copy of God's word, we do have some Bibles on the back cart, I think, uh, across from the table. And uh, you can certainly uh, grab one of those and take it home and have it be yours uh, as our gift to you. Uh, So hopefully you don't feel too much guilt if you don't have a Bible this morning, uh, just a little. Um, As we jump back into our study of uh, this book of the Bible, you might have noticed so far uh, that one of the things that John has done is he's focused on uh, contrasts, right? Light, God is light, and darkness. In him there is no darkness at all. Old, An old commandment, but actually it's a new commandment. But it's actually not new, it's old, old and new. And then most recently, the contrast of love and hate. Well, today we come to yet another contrast and one that's really important in our study of this letter, really important for us as Christians, for us as believers. It's at the heart of what John is, or or why John is compelled to write this correspondence in the first place to a first century church trying to find its way and struggling to understand how it should follow Jesus what it should believe about Jesus and the contrast that he focuses on today in our passage is that of truth and lies truth and lies and it's also by way of introduction before i read it it's also the third of three tests that i told you we were going to find in the book of first john tests so to speak that that verify that assured those believers in the first century as well as us here today that we are his that we are known by him that we truly know him that eternal life is ours right the first test was chapter 2 verse 3 by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments it was the moral indicator right what do you do with what he says? It's a good indicator of what you believe and where your heart is. The second test was in chapter 2, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. It's a social Test The social indicator, how do you treat the family of God? That's another good indicator of whether the Spirit of God resides in you, whether you know Jesus and are known by Him. And today, we come to the third test, the doctrinal indicator. What do you believe about Him? It's not just what you do. It's actually what you believe as well. And really, that's the heart of it. So let's read, and I invite you as always for the reading of God's Word to stand with me out of honor and reverence for that Word. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27, picking up where we left off last week. Listen as I read. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become, become plain that they are all not of us. But you, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. and is true, and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Well, there's a lot in this passage uh, for us to unpack together, and I want to begin this morning by simply talking about truth. I want to begin by talking about the state of truth in our day and age. I spoke to the high schoolers about this briefly last month. The notion that seems increasingly prevalent in our culture and is expressed in simple phrases like this, well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. Here's what that means to me. We also hear my truth, your truth. And as I told our high schoolers, the fact that cilantro tastes like soap may be true for me, but I acknowledge that that might not be true for you, right? That that's a truth, that maybe there's a difference. But when it comes to gravity, we all fall. It seems so simple. And yet I think we all would acknowledge that we are in a truth crisis where clear propositions about reality are suddenly becoming cloudy and disputed. Where words are being redefined to mean something that they simply don't. It's troubling. It's scary. And this is something of what John was facing in the early church. Oh, not about cultural things at large, maybe he was facing some of that, but his concern was more for the church, for the people of God, and specifically what they believed about the fundamental truth of who Jesus is remember this church is young it's a fledgling church trying to find its way and so John wants to solidify what may be solidified here at ascension and yet is always under threat verse 26 look at it with me I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you In the time of John's writing, in the latter half of the first century, there was a group in this church that sought to redefine Jesus and therefore redefine what he came to do. This is striking at the heart of the gospel itself. And this group, as you might imagine, is creating insecurity among God's people. Right? Which is another reason why he writes. We looked at that verse. It's back in uh, chapter 4. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life because there's a lot of insecurity in this church. What are we to believe? How can we really know that what we believe is right? What is the heart of Jesus? These are things they were wrestling with and John wants to cut through this confusion in this letter. And here today... I think we can sum up his words in one phrase. One phrase that we're just going to kind of unpack for the rest of our time together. And it's simply this it's an exhortation to the church. It's an exhortation I think he wanted the first century church to receive as he wrote these words. And it's simply hold fast to the truth. People of God, Church of Jesus Christ, hold fast to the truth. Now, he says a lot more than just that phrase here in this passage, but it seemed to me that, that his concerns can be distilled into that one phrase, a phrase that I want to, now having distilled it, to unpack it for the rest of our time together. And I know that we got some kids who are note takers, we got some adults who are note takers, you hear that there's one point, you write down that one point, hold fast to the truth, and you're like, Done. Tune out for the rest of the time. No, 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 no. We've got one point, but kids, I want you to listen for three things. Because John is going to tell us why we need to hold fast. He's going to tell us what the truth is that we need to cling fast to. And then finally, he's going to tell us how to hold fast. Why, what, and how. That's where we're headed. And there's two Christian buzzwords that get us right out of the gate. Why do we need to hold fast to the truth? Because it's the last hour and antichrists. Ooh, antichrists. Those two phrases get thrown around a lot in our Christian circles these days, not always in the proper way, Let's first talk about the last hour. Some in the church, in the evangelical church, we like to fixate on this idea of the last hour, on this notion that we are in the last days. That's an equivalent phrase that that John uses. Uh, The last days, the last hour. We are in the last days. We are in the last days. as the people of God were when they originally read this letter some 2,000 years ago because we entered the last hour, we entered the last days after Jesus rose from the grave and ascended into heaven and will be in the last days, in the last hour until he comes again, whether that be this afternoon or whether that be another 1,500 years from now. You see, what I want you to see is that the use of the last hour, the use of the last days, we see it in places like Acts 2.17. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Hebrews 1.2. In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. John uses the last hour, not the last days, but it's the same thing. This is more of a theological notion than it is a chronological notion. John's not trying to get us to count our days. He's just saying we have entered a different age. And not just that, but these last days, this last hour, this final period of human history where Jesus will end it all and consummate it all, Paul warns the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock to draw away the disciples after them. The apostles told the church that the last days, the last hour, they're not going to be easy. We as the church, as Christians, ought not expect that we're just going to coast to the finish line. It's a concept that these Christians would have heard of and known. That the fact that a new era has dawned Antichrists have come. And there's that second buzzword, the Antichrist, or Antichrists, as it says. John first says, You heard that Antichrist is coming. Interestingly enough, the word Antichrist, which gets a lot of airplay, is only used four times in the Bible, and it's only used by John in his letters. Compare that to how many. Times the word Christ is used and it's not even close. But this concept of the Antichrist is found elsewhere and it's analogous to Paul's idea of the man of lawlessness which we find in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. The Antichrist The man of lawlessness is a figure who will not only oppose Christ and his people, but will also seek to take the place of Christ. I say all that to say that's not who John is talking about here. He says, you've heard the Antichrist is coming. Yeah, that's true. The Antichrist is coming. But that's another sermon. That's for uh, another day. That's another teaching. Rather, John is making the point that you've heard the Antichrist is coming. But he's saying that there are those already present who possess the spirit of the one who is to come. There's already stirrings going on in the church that will culminate in that figure, whoever and whenever he may be. You see, John is focusing on the church here and now. He's not speculating on something that might happen in the future church. And so he says, this is why you need to hold fast to the truth. Because in these last days, in this last hour, in this new era of Christian history that we are living in, antichrists have come. They are here. Now, in the first century, this had a very specific form, and John knew this. He was writing specifically about this and concerning this. There was an ancient teaching in the church called Gnosticism, which claimed that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He couldn't have come in the flesh, but the divinity of Christ descended upon the man Jesus at his baptism and left him before his crucifixion. And this view of Jesus, which there's much more to it, much more mystical, much more complex, but this view of Jesus denied repentance of sin and faith. It denied the basics of the gospel, that we are called to repent of our sin and to believe and have faith in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And instead, it replaced the gospel with some divine light that is in us that we all can tap into and Jesus helps us tap into that. In other words, it not only re- redefined who Jesus was, but it gutted the gospel. And that's why John is so concerned about the church. This is this is bad stuff. This is dangerous stuff. These are antichrists, he says. These were people who were apparently in the church. They were seemingly brothers and sisters in the Lord who now have proved themselves to be far from Him. And this brings up some important theological concepts. Two in particular, if we could just kind of look at these for a second before we move on with John's argument. The first is this this idea, this theological construct of the visible and invisible church. Some of you may have heard that distinction. It's the teaching that notes that the church that we can see, the visible church, is not the true church. There are some among us, I pray not in this room, but there are some among us who are not of us. You see, the true church, the invisible church, is known only to God himself. And unfortunately, I think th- though their stories are not over, and I'm not pronouncing condemnation on them, those of you who have been around for a while, we've seen some in our midst. Those who we thought were near and dear to us, those who we thought were brothers and sisters, and now They are far from us. They are far from the Lord. And while we pray for their repentance, while we pray for their return, they may have simply proved that they were never truly one of us. And that doctrine or that teaching of the visible invisible church also ties in with another doctrine that we find here in these verses, and that is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. See, John is clearly not saying that these antichrists have have lost their faith. He's saying that they never had true faith in the first place. The clear teaching of the Bible, the clear teaching of Scripture, and again, this is for another day, another passage, another sermon, is that those who are truly the Lord's will endure to the end. Because no one will snatch them out of the Savior's hand. And so those who have been part of us, who are not among us anymore, simply proved that they were never truly one of us. And so John tells these first century believers that in the face of these, in the face of these desertions, in the face of these antichrists, that they need to hold fast. Fast. To the truth. Well, that's the why. That's the why. Now we get into the what. What is the truth that we need to hold fast to? It's summed up in verses 23 and 22. Excuse me, 23, 22 and 23. Look at it with me. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Here is the simple propositional truth that needs to believe. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Period. Doctrine matters. Theology matters. Words matter. Precision of words matters. So just to unpack that phrase, anyone who denies that Jesus of Nazareth, the one born in Bethlehem to Mary, fathered for a time by Joseph, is the Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the divine Son of God, anyone who doesn't believe that is a liar and is ultimately lost. This is the testimony of the scriptures. This is the testimony of the apostles John 14, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Brothers and sisters, this ought to put wind in our sails, and it also ought to bring us to our knees. particularly for the vast majority of the world that denies these truths. They deny these truths, and therefore they are without hope in this world and in the next. What we hear flowing from these verses is the reality that when, when the incarnation is denied, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. A host of things follow. As John Calvin wrote, the great reformer, we now see that Christ is denied whenever the things that belong to him are taken from him. So what about us? Let me me try to bring bring this into this place, into 2021, Edmonds, Washington. Gnosticism isn't rampant in this church. But plenty of other modern opinions are. The simple reality is that the the encouragement that John's first hearers and readers got from this passage is the same encouragement that we need to hear today, both in a corporate way, as the people of God, and as individuals bombarded with every voice. Hold fast to the truth. You see, you and I, brothers and sisters, we're we're called to hold to this unpopular opinion that there aren't many roads to God, but there's one. You can't have the Father without Jesus. There is only one way, and this in our day and age might be deemed hate speech, and you might be deemed intolerant, but it is the truth. Not a truth that we arrogantly stand on, but a truth that we humbly bow to. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, you deny the Father, you deny the Son. So those who followed the Gnostics in the first century, antichrists. Those who followed Arius in the second and third centuries, antichrists. Those who followed Muhammad in the 6th and 7th centuries and still do today, antichrists. Those who followed Joseph Smith in the 19th century and still do today, antichrists. Those who are spiritual and say that Jesus was just a wonderful man, a good teacher, a moral example, antichrists. There is no middle ground Truth is not malleable. Jesus can't be who you want him to be. He is. Therefore, any teaching who wants to deny who he is and therefore what he has done must be discerned and must be rejected. And the truth held fast. Oh, even in the church... Even in the church, there's a drift. There's always a drift because of our hearts. From the Jesus of the Bible, from the gospel of the Bible to something else, whether it be prosperity, whether it be social justice, whether it be works adding to what Jesus has done. I love that in God's providence, I didn't orchestrate this, that we're at this passage on Reformation Sunday. The day where we remember, October 31st, 1517, the day that a monk with a mallet hammered a handwritten note, a handwritten protest against all the ways that the church was misunderstanding the work of Christ. And he says, the Spirit and the gifts are ours. And he held fast to that truth. A truth that was grounded in apostolic testimony. And here we sit over 500 years later, seeking to do the same in a world, in a culture that wants to redefine everything. Hold fast to the truth. And that brings us to the final encouragement of this passage. We've looked at the what, we've looked at the why, and now the how. Two words, that's how. Two words. Anointing. Anointing and abiding. They're both in the passage. Another Christian buzzword, anointed. John writes in verse 20, you have been anointed by the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, by the Holy One. Anointing in the Bible, of course, began with oil as a way to represent that one had been chosen by God and and set apart for a task. And so David, for instance, we just studied the life of David. David in Psalm, or excuse me, in 1 Samuel 16 is, is anointed with oil. But when we come into the New Covenant, when we come into the New Testament, anointing is specifically linked to Jesus Himself, to God's true anointed. In fact, the Greek word for anointing is chrisma, a word that you can hear is related to Christos, to Christ. We, therefore, are little Christs, having the same spirit that he had. Not just the spirit of power, but a spirit of truth. And so John quotes Jesus in his gospel, John 16, 13, saying, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And so this is this is the beautiful reality that John is describing. And he's encouraging these believers who are insecure as he describes it. He's saying, you know the truth. You know the truth. As one commentator described it, hopefully, I think we all have an internal defense mechanism. Because we've been anointed. We've been given the spirit of discernment the spirit of truth you can discern and therefore when innovative ideas come down the pike when original thoughts are suddenly conveyed to you you can reject them because brothers and sisters there's no need for originality in the church of Jesus if if I stand up here and say something to you that has never been said before that's problematic I don't have an original thought in my brain Our task as believers is not discovery, but recovery. Remembering the things we've forgotten, restoring the things that we have drifted from. That's what we're about. Not innovation and originality. And so he says to the church, you know the apostolic testimony about Jesus. You know the truth. You don't need anyone to teach you that. You just need to hold fast to what you know, to what you've learned. Now, one of the things that John is not saying is is John's not putting me out of a job. He's not saying the teachers of the Bible are completely unnecessary. After all, John is teaching them here in this letter, he teaches them in other letters he writes. But he is saying that as far as the fundamental gospel, as far as the fundamentals of who Jesus is, church, you know. You know who he is. You know what needs to be rejected. You're not at the mercy of others. We have the word. We have the spirit. The spirit and the gifts are ours. And so Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it and, from how, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So you're anointed. And having received that anointing, church of Jesus, the last word in this passage is is abide. It's a word we're going to pick up next week because it's a word he starts off with as he moves into the next section, abide. Because when we abide, abiding simply being that notion that Jesus gave that he is the vine, we are the branches, we are tapped in to all that he is. We let his word fill our minds. We let his heart transform our affections. We let his grace direct and power our wills because abiding in Jesus, you're united to the Father. Abiding in Jesus, you're united in the Spirit. Abiding in Jesus, you know the truth and you can hold fast to it. Abiding in Jesus, eternal life is yours. Abiding in Jesus, you are secure. And so abide. Abide that God might give you grace to hold fast to the truth. To hold fast to this truth. This truth. How precisely this passage hits you this morning, I I don't know. I don't know all the intricacies of your story, of where your heart is, But I do know this, we in the church, we need revival. Some of you personally need revival. But I know we as a church need revival. And I'm not just talking about APC, I'm talking about the church of Jesus. And this is a reminder that it's not going to come through innovation. It's going to come through proclamation through holding fast to the truth revealed in us, lived through us, and offered to the world. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word from your servant John. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the words that he wrote inspired by you, And I pray that something helpful that I have added to them would now in turn take root in the hearts and lives of your people. That we indeed, as people, would be changed. That we indeed, as a church, would be built up, challenged, encouraged. That we know whom we have believed in. We can hold fast to him. We must hold fast to him. Father, we pray all of this in the great name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.